Well, it's always nice to be asked. I appreciate the opportunity to be here tonight. Uh, I just pulled the first sermon outline off my desk that I found, quite literally. So uh, I'm sorry, I didn't. Uh, I just didn't know what to do tonight. So we're going to talk about Christ, and this is a pretty simple sermon. It'll consist of five points, and it's found in Matthew chapter 12. And the context is Jesus having dealt with the Pharisees, as he so often did. Uh, he has had an altercation with them, and it's about the Sabbath. And I don't know if you've ever bothered to read any of the writings in the Mishnah or the Talmudic commentary, not that you don't have a lot of better things to do than this, but there's all these laws that the Pharisees came up with, and all of these things that you couldn't do or that you should do, uh, what constituted work and what didn't on the Sabbath day. And you had to, in some cases, you had to tie a rope to your leg to make sure you didn't go too far from the house, or, you know, you couldn't pick up uh, this particular type of pottery, but you could pick up that particular type of pottery, and just goes on, on and on and on. Uh, and in this story, there is a man with a withered hand, and Jesus simply heals him. And there is quite a dispute about whether or not this is something that should have happened. And Matthew, in his Jewish way, tells us that this particular circumstance or these circumstances occurred to fulfill a prophecy out of Isaiah chapter 42, where he, which he lists in our English Bible between verses 18 and 21. And if you read through the book of Matthew, you'll notice that Matthew does this a lot. He, he'll say, he'll quote something about the birth of Jesus, and then he'll say, well, and this is to fulfill uh, something about Christ, and he just uses that formula over and over because he was trying to convince a Jewish audience, in fact, that Jesus was the Christ. And that's why we have the big genealogy at the beginning of the gospel, because if he hadn't come through the lineage of David, nobody would have cared anything else about him uh, if you were of Jewish descent. That was the primary thing that mattered, was that he was of that royal lineage. And then you could talk about whatever you wanted to talk about. But in this particular case, Matthew says that these events that have, that have happened on this Sabbath, the healing of, the, of this man with the withered hand, has been written to fulfill, verse 17, what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out nor will he... Anyone hear his voice in the streets, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. You know, I've read the Bible like you have for many years, and there's a lot of passages that I'm very fond of, uh, but I, I had read this one for the longest time and just didn't realize that right here in front of me was a, an excellent description uh, of the work and the character of Jesus Christ. I'm very fond of the description that John gives in Revelation chapter 1. And that's usually where I go when someone asks me to, to talk about Jesus. But here there are five characteristics set down in this statement of Isaiah that is repeated by Matthew about Jesus. And I think that each one of them has something to teach us and something that we ought to remember about who he was and who we ought to be as his followers and as his brothers and sisters. The very first thing that 
Matthew here records is that he is cherished of God, or God delights in him. Again, verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, the one in whom I delight. Uh, don't we delight in our children? I mean, you say, well, not always, right? Uh, what's the, the old saying? I, I always love them, but I don't always like them. You know, you don't really quite understand that until you have kids of your own. But the reality is, is that that was always true between God the Father and God the Son while He was here on earth and into eternity. And when we think about uh, the love and the, the family relationship that exists in the, in the very Trinity, you have to remember Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and all of that mess wasn't the first family. The first family was God. God is a family name. And when we think about God the Father and God the Son, we think about the ultimate father here, one who cherished his son very deeply. And we think about a son who later will say, I always do the will of my father. You know, that's a, that's a son you really cherish, isn't it? That's a child you really cherish. If you've got two kids at home and you can tell one of them to go clean their room and they go and do it and the other one you have to beat with your belt and chase through the house and yell at 15 times and then they still don't do it and you have to start all over, which one are you likely to cherish more? A lot of the time. You say, well, I cherish them both. But truth be told, uh, the one who does your will. And Jesus said, I always do the will of the Father. I'll just, I'll throw a joke in here. I don't know if this fits or not, but I've got it on the paper, so I will. A uh, little Johnny wasn't getting good marks in school. It's always little Johnny, isn't it? I've never actually seen little Johnny. I don't know if he's real, but I've got all these preacher jokes, and it's always little Johnny or little Susie. And so one day he surprised the teacher with an announcement. And he tapped her on the shoulder and said, Listen, I don't want to scare you, but my daddy says if I don't get better grades, one of us is getting a whipping. <laughs> For what it's worth, we delight in our children, and God delights in his. Jesus was God's chosen one. And God the Father couldn't have been more pleased with him. And I personally think that's how we ought to feel about Jesus. You ever stop and just thought about how you feel about Jesus? I, you know, there, there's a certain emotional component uh, to being a Christian. I mean, we talk about the facts of the gospel and we speak about the facts of the resurrection and the facts and the doctrines of the, of, of the Bible, but how do you really feel about it? What kind of emotions uh, well up inside of you when, you when you think about Christ? You think about who he was. You think about what he left to come to heaven. Uh, Philippians 2 says he emptied himself. Uh, he gave up the very uh, prerogatives of deity. I mean, have you ever stopped and thought about just what, I mean, you ever just tried to wrap your head around what that would be like? I mean, we don't really uh, have a, a comprehension of it, but uh, just to sit down and think about how much he gave up to come here. Think about the life that he, li that he lived. In poverty, he said, foxes have holes to live in. Birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He lived a life of poverty. He went to the poor. He lived amongst the poor. Had no real earthly possessions uh, to speak of. You think about the way he died. You know, we talk about it often. Uh, but have you ever really sat down and contemplated crucifixion? Uh, and not only the act itself, but why? He did it. 
And the depth of the love that has to be manifested in an individual to undergo that kind of torture and treatment and death. No wonder God cherished him. He was willing to be obedient and he was willing to do God's will to that level. I mean, what an example to us. But then think about uh, what he's done for us. And then I think about the fact that that grave was empty three days later. And I think about the fact that he ascended. And I think about the fact that I'm in a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, John says. Uh, So does Peter. And all of this is because of his work. And someday he's coming back again. And this whole world is going to come to an end. This whole project will be uh, destroyed. And there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And I'll live in a perfect world, a perfect existence. Whatever that is, we don't entirely, well, I say entirely, we barely even grasp what that means. And yet all of this is because of Him. That's a pretty tremendous gift, isn't it? I mean, it's something we ought to ponder. And it ought to bring not just facts to our minds and commandments to our lips to be told and obeyed. There ought to be a certain love that wells up inside us. There ought to be real emotion that comes forth when we think about how deeply we ought to cherish Jesus. What else do we cherish about Him? We cherish His teaching, don't we? We should. It's terrible when someone says, you know, I really, I love Jesus. I, I, I cherish Him. And I know what He says, but, and then they fill the blanks in with whatever the latest and greatest a psycho babble that's being told on the daytime talk shows or the latest self-help book or whatever the latest television evangelist has written about how to have a great life. What about what Jesus says? Uh, Do we cherish not only His character and what He's done, but what He said and how devoted are we to what He said? And if you understand the way the Bible is put together, He was involved with writing all of it. From the beginning to the very end. So we're not just talking about the Gospels. We're talking about the letters of Paul and Peter and John. We're talking about Genesis. We're talking about the prophets. All of it is from Him. It's from God. And we need to cherish every word. And we need to recognize that when He speaks on something, then we cherish His position. Someone says, what's your position on marriage? Well, God says marriage is honorable. Okay, what's your position? That's all I needed. Uh, Jesus uh, said that marriage was between a man and a woman. What's your position? Well, I'll cherish God's position. How's that? I don't have to worry. Today on the news, has has everyone seen, and I'm not trying to make fun of anyone, uh, but everybody has seen the lady who was head of the NAACP uh, out in Seattle who believes she's black, but she's not. And the whole discussion on talk radio today I found fascinating because everyone was speaking about we don't have a standard anymore. So everything's okay. So Bruce Jenner's a woman and this lady's black, but she looks like me. Okay? What's wrong? Well, they don't have anyone to turn to. There's nothing really cherished in their life. They don't cherish the teaching of God. They're not anchored there. But if you want to be anchored through all the crazy insanity of the world, then you cherish the character of Jesus and you cherish His teaching. And you'll always have an answer. It may not be one people like, 
but you'll know where you stand and you'll be able to firmly plant your feet on a foundation that never moves. And so God, Jesus was God's chosen one. And for Christians, He's our chosen one too. He's the one we look to. And we need to remember that because I don't know, even as a preacher, there are days when I forget that. Number two, Isaiah here says that Jesus was inhabited by the Spirit. And I don't know exactly what that means. Matthew 12 and 18, I will put my Spirit on Him. Uh, this is the Father speaking about the Son. And as I mentioned a moment ago in Philippians chapter 2, uh, the statement is made that Jesus left heaven and He emptied Himself. And we, we, we wonder, and there's lots of people who uh, have written lots of books about what did Jesus empty Himself of. And I, I just have always thought of it in terms of uh, He emptied Himself of the rights or the prerogatives of deity. It would be akin to a king leaving his castle and just going to live in the village. He's still a king. He's just not eating the fancy foods of the, of the castle, and he's not got the servants, and he's not exercising his prerogatives. But he's still king. And so Jesus didn't give up a deity. But he did give up, apparently, his own power. When we look at Matthew chapter 3, we see the baptism of Jesus. And he goes out to John, and I don't really know all the reasons why he was baptized. People ask, why was Jesus baptized? I think it's a very simple, I think it was a very simple explanation. I think it's simply to show that he always obeyed God. And at this time, John was sent by God to baptize in the Jordan. And people were going out to be baptized, in their case, for the forgiveness of their sins. But Jesus didn't have any sins to be forgiven. So clearly that was not the reason for his presence before John. But he says, I'm here to fulfill all righteousness. Again, the reason God cherished him was because he always did his will. And there are others, but you can understand how that relationship would be so precious. However, as he is coming up out of the water after he has been baptized, the Spirit descends upon him as a dove. And God says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so why Jesus was here on earth, why the Son was incarnate in human flesh, however we want to try to get our heads around that, someone has said that the, the incarnation is a mystery wrapped in an enigma. You know, if you want your head to hurt for a little while, go figure out how 100% God existed in 100% man. And then think about the fact that someday you're going to meet the man, Jesus, in heaven. And you're going to meet the man. And you're going to meet the Son of God. And if you can figure all that out, call me. I'll be glad to let you come and teach at Abel Street. Uh, because it's uh, certainly something to, that we need to ponder. But there is a certain level of mystery with God. What do we always say? We don't know Deuteronomy 29, 29. Everybody know what that means? The secret things of God are of God. So there you go. You know, that's my cop-out verse. He says, I will put my spirit upon him. It means that everything that, that Jesus did, he did through the power of God. It was the power of God that worked through him on this earth. When he healed, when he taught. And again, there's a certain level of mystery here. But I think about verses like Judges 14 and 6. And this is a statement made of Samson. It says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. 
as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother uh, what he had done. You know, that was some amazing strength. If you go back and you read the, the story of Samson and you, and you think about all the things that he did, he took the jawbone of a donkey and he killed a whole bunch of men. And in, in the end, you know, he pulls the whole temple down uh, on all these Philistines. If you didn't know better, if I did not believe in the inspiration of Scripture and that this was from God, I would say the stories about Samson were definitely legend. But then I get to thinking about how powerful having the Spirit of God is. And why should I be surprised that Samson would be capable of such feats? And when I understand the very character of God, I'm not at all surprised that Jesus being filled with the Spirit of God is capable of walking on the water or looking at the seas and saying, Be still, and the night is calm, or healing someone, or knowing the very thoughts of people. So let me say this. We don't have the Spirit of God like Samson did. We're not going to go out here and pick up a car. We don't have the Spirit of God in the way that Jesus did. But we do have the same God who has the same Spirit. And the New Testament is very clear that He has given His Spirit to His people. And at times I wonder if we remember how powerful God is. And I wonder if we don't try to do too much on our own instead of asking God to work with that kind of power within us. You know, there was a time I grew up in a, I grew up in a church where uh, to, to discuss the idea uh, that we should ask for the power of God, you know, that we should say things like, Lord, let your spirit work within us. Uh, was just heresy. You know, you, would, you could read the Bible, but you couldn't ask for the power of God. But then we would turn around and we would speak about the providence of God. So, wait a minute. He's working in our lives, but I shouldn't ask for Him to work in my life. Well, the Bible is very plain, especially in the book of 1 Corinthians. It speaks in 1 Corinthians 3 and 16, later in chapter 6, uh, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and speaks in two ways. It speaks of the individual being the temple, and it also speaks of us all being the temple of God, and having the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not going to tell you that you're going to walk out here and speak in tongues like uh, Cornelius or uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2, because you're not. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about something that's going to allow you to do miraculous things. But what we are saying is, is that God wants to work through His people. But he's not going to force his way in. And he's not going to do that which we don't ask. I remember Hezekiah. When Hezekiah was in a real mess and he was sick and he was worried about the kingdom being destroyed, and he prays to God. And I can't tell you what chapter this is in Kings, or I would. You can look it up when you get home. That's what Google's for. But I can't tell you what God's answer is. God says, Hezekiah, because you have asked, I'll grant you 15 more years to get your house in order. Do we ask for the power of God in our life? Do we really? Or do we think, well, you know, I can handle that. That's been one of my biggest problems throughout my life. I, I can handle it, Lord. I, I, I got it. got this under control. I don't want to do that. I want God to put His Spirit within me. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. But I know I want it because it's from God. And James tells me that every good gift comes from the Father of lights. 
Everything that God gives is good. And He knows how to give it. He knows how to take away my sins when I don't understand. He knows how to give me His power when I don't comprehend how it works. Uh, there's so many statements like this in the Bible. Romans chapter 8 speaks of the Spirit of God interceding in our prayers. You know, uh, when we offer up uh, words and groanings of which we don't understand how to pray, and yet He works on our behalf. I mean, what is that all about? I don't know, but I'm glad that the power exists. I'm glad that that truth exists, because often I don't know what to pray to God. But... He knows, and the effort that I put forth, because you have asked, Hezekiah, then I will grant your request. We need to ask for the power of God in our lives and in the church, uh, because this world is a pretty dark place. And I think about another statement about Samson, and it's a terrifying statement to me, even though I recognize that it applied to Samson differently than it does to me. Later on in the narrative of, of Judges, it says, but he did not know that the Spirit of God had left him. That is a terrifying verse, if you stop and just ponder it. He didn't know. So it tells me, you know, it's not better felt and told religion. Uh, Samson didn't necessarily know when he had it and when he didn't. But his lifestyle was what allowed God to work through him. And so if we live for God, and if we dedicate ourselves to his kingdom, then however he works and however he gives us his power and his spirit, uh, we can know that he works with us. 1 Corinthians 3, about verse 8 or 9, uh, Paul says that, uh, you know, Apollos and I came amongst you and we were God's fellow workers while we were in Corinth. Don't you want to be God's fellow worker? Don't you want God to work with you? I mean, uh, we can't do it ourselves. So Jesus was one who had the Spirit of God. And we need to be a people who pray every day for that same Spirit and that same God to work within us. Now, it's approaching 8 o'clock. How long do I go? Ten after? Seven minutes after? Well, I better hurry up then because it's just point three. I like this one, though. And if we don't get all five, that's fine. I'll save them for next year. The third thing he says is that Jesus is a proclaimer of justice. Now, I don't know about you, but when I watch the television and when I, I think about uh, courtrooms, there's a lot of times when justice just isn't served, is it? Innocent people get put in jail. We hear these stories about people that uh, 20 years they spend in jail. And then there's DNA evidence and they're released because they're innocent. And then there are people who are very guilty because they have great attorneys and they've got lots of money and then they, they walk away and they go live on their, their island in the South Pacific or, or whatever, or they go home and everybody knows they're guilty. And so all around us we see injustice. And maybe things not even in the courtroom, just the way that people treat one another uh, on a daily basis. Uh, you see things like spousal abuse when you're in ministry and you think, you know, there's not much worse uh, than a man that will beat up a woman. And yet that... It's something that happens fairly regularly, sadly enough. And you begin to see a world uh, that is just broken and fallen. Child molestation, rape, murder, uh, just the lies uh, that go on that are perpetrated every day. And we could sit here and we could just go on and on about everything that's wrong in the world. 
But here's what I know, and this is one of those things that gets me out of bed when, when other things won't. And that is, is that ultimately, Jesus is going to make everything right. There will come a time when He's going to set everything right. And that's a reason to love Him. Because I don't have the ability to do that. People say things like, well, how can you send someone to hell? Or how can you send that, let that person go to heaven? Well, I'm not going to do any of that. Because I don't have the ability. I don't have the mental ability. I don't have the intelligence. I don't have the knowledge. But Jesus is a proclaimer of justice. And in John chapter 5, He says that in, these, in the last days, in the last day, it will be My words which will judge the world. So what is He going to do in judgment? Well, I don't have to wonder, do I? He's already told me. A lady came in my office the other day and she is trying to convince herself that God is okay with her marriage. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with someone like this, but she was doing her dead level best to convince me, and if, by the way, you have to spend 45 minutes convincing someone of something that you're doing is that it's okay, it's not, just in case you were wondering. And she said, well, Jesus is my judge. And I said, well, you're right. And he's already told you where he stands on where you are. And her thought was, well, at the end, in some way, uh, it's going to be different. Like, I can, I can put one over on him, or I can, uh, I can convince him that this is okay. Well, he's already proclaimed his justice. It's on the pages of Scripture. But I'm also reminded that he proclaimed his mercy, and he proclaimed his love. Verse 18 again, He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. He will not, no one will hear His voice in the streets. Jesus proclaimed right living, honesty, morality, love for your neighbor. Just read the Sermon on the Mount sometimes. I mean, just as a moral exercise. But did you notice that He never ever quarrels with anybody in Scripture? There's not a single time when Jesus does what we would call uh, quarreling. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't get into a healthy argument with some of the folks in Scripture. I think you could see that in John 3, for example, with Nicodemus. But, but a good argument sometimes is healthy to, uh, to help us learn. A lot of people don't know how to argue. It usually turns into an emotional tirade. Jesus never does that. He never quarrels with people uh, about what is right and what is wrong and about what God has said and, and not said. He simply tells them what God has said. And the chips fall where they may. And I'm reminded then if that kind of approach is good enough for the very chosen one and cherished one of God, then it's good enough for me. I don't have to win an argument. I don't have to convince everybody of everything. God hasn't called me to do that. What He's called us to do is tell the truth and to not bend it and to let people know what He has said. We're all preachers. We're all proclaimers uh, in that matter. And then number 4, verse 20 says, A bruised reed He will not break, and a smoldering wick He will not snuff out. Jesus had a purpose in life. And a lot of people never find one. His purpose was very simple. It was not to build Himself up, 
uh, it was in no way uh, to promote himself. His whole purpose was to promote you and me, to promote others, to minister to others. I was watching a, a video on a big-time Hollywood producer the other day. I don't remember his name. Uh, but he said, I finally found happiness in life when I would invite people over and the whole meal would be about them. You know, Jesus had a happiness in him uh, that few people have because his life was about everybody else. And there's a certain happiness that we, we lose when all of our time is spent thinking about, well, what about me? What do I need? We're not like Christ. And we lose that joy. Uh, we lose that blessing. Number five, he was a producer of hope. And I don't know about you, but if it wasn't for the Christian hope, well, I'd probably end my life. That's a fact. Uh, if you stop and think about where you're left, if you don't have the hope of Christianity, I can think of no valid reason to continue living. I don't know if you've ever worked with anyone uh, who committed suicide. I have. And I can tell you that if you go and speak with those who work with people who are suicidal, they will all tell you one thing about them. They have reached a stage in life, for whatever reason, at which they now believe it is impossible to ever hope again. They have no hope whatsoever. Don't ever find yourself in that position. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. There is always hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? And never let go of that. I love this. This is a quote from William Barclay. He says, The Christian hope is the hope which has seen everything and endured everything and has not despaired because it believes in God. The Christian hope is not hope in the human spirit, not in human goodness, not in human endurance, not in human achievement. The Christian hope is in the power of God. So that's where our hope lies. And so often people hope in the, the human spirit. And yet, what can you say about hum humanity? Well, humanity's fallen. And every single human being you're ever going to meet is going to disappoint you. Whether it's your husband, your wife, your children, your friends, somebody on the street. We're disappointing. Uh, we shatter hope in others. So if your hope is placed in another human being, then you're going to find yourself hopeless. But Jesus never disappoints. No wonder he was cherished of God. Uh, and therefore, we can always trust him. We can always uh, know that his promises are going to be kept. So hope in him is not a pipe dream. It's a reality. And he tells us that he's gone so that he may return someday, John 14, and take us uh, home to a place that he's prepared for us. Do I need to stop? Okay. Well, sorry guys. Um, uh, you know, when you preach, you're supposed to take it to a crescendo at the end. And then, you know, of course, I'm not offering an invitation, so we're, we're unscriptural tonight anyway. Uh, I'll do that later, I think. I'll be scriptural again. Uh, let me just leave you. With this is a this is kind of an end piece, and then I'll I'll sit down. This was a quote from a guy named Hugh Thomas Kerr, and I and I like to use this quote here because it reminds me that at the end of the day, 
I really am here to proclaim Christ. And, and that's really the answer to the problems of the world. He said, we're not sent to preach sociology, but salvation. Not economics, but evangelism. Not reform, but redemption. Not culture, but conversion. Not progress, but pardon. Not the social order, but the new birth. Not an organization, but a new creation. Not democracy, but the gospel. Not civilization, but Christ. So let's remember why we're here and who allowed us to be here. Thank you for your time.